if you have Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of Mark, at chapter 3. So I've been doing a series of messages on healing. And, you know, really what happened is a few months ago, after the service, and many of you guys know this, but church was over. We were hanging out, out in the lobby there, and someone said, hey, we should pray for Tom and Nadine. And so we were like, sure, you guys can pray for us. And when they did, God just showed up. Boy, it was like, it was like a bomb went off in there. And the Holy Spirit, with power, touched a lot of people. They were shaking and laughing and stomping and clapping. And a lot of you guys were there. It was pretty intense. And kind of went on like that a bit for a few weeks where we would have these sparks of the manifest presence of God. And then as a pastor, I'm trying to think, okay, so what do I do with this? And, and this was my answer. I wanted to give some context for it that we could make some application. And I thought healing would be a good way to do it, that we could um, grow in our sensitivity and our awareness of the presence of God, and then find out from him, well, Lord, you're here, what do you want us to do with it? And so that's kind of how healing works. John Wimber described healing as this, listen and obey. <laughs> you hear what God says to you, and then you do what he says, as best as, as you know how. And so that's what we've been doing uh, the last number of weeks. And the vehicle, the the vehicle that we've used to, to actually do it has been uh, words of knowledge. And so at the end of my message this week, like I have in previous weeks, we'll leave the, an open opportunity for anyone who receives a word of knowledge to share it. And so what's a word of knowledge? You get some type of revelation from God, an insight from God, information from God, data from God. He tells you something that another person here needs. They need, they need, to, they need healing. There's part of their body that's sore, or there's something going on, and somehow God identifies that person, lets that person know that they're on God's radar. And it's a very loving thing to get a, a word of knowledge. Hey, this word is for you, and we want to pray for you. And so um, it's been great. I mean, it's been amazing. A lot, of you, a lot of you have shared different types of words of knowledge, and it, um, it seems like every week there's somebody in the room with, with whatever that that need might be, and then they get prayer. And, and we've had a bunch of people, I don't know, at least six or eight people who've gotten back and touched me and said, I've been healed. And so this has been encouraging. And I'm thinking, we're going to continue to do this. And it gives me an opportunity to teach from God's word on the topic. And so I've been using the Gospel of Mark um, as a vehicle to, to look at the healing encounters that Jesus had and see what we can learn uh, from it. And so last week, in my fifth message on healing, we looked at the account of the paralytic and the four friends. Remember, the guys told her they couldn't get in the house. They ripped off the roof and lowered this paralyzed man on a mat down in front of Jesus. And the scripture says that when God saw their faith, the four friends, he looked at the man and said, your sins are forgiven. And that began a whole bit of confrontation with some of the teachers of the law who were there. They were not happy about it at all. They had issue with the fact that Jesus said that, sin, that the guy's sins were forgiven. And so, so far in, gospel, in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus heal people in a variety of ways. He's cast out a demon in Mark 1.25. He's rebuked a fever in uh, chapter 1, verse 31. He, he healed somebody, by a leper, by touching them and then a word of command when he said, I am willing, be healed. In chapter 2, verse 5, he heals somebody by forgiving their sins. 
And so what I see so far as we're going through the Gospel of John, if we want to learn how to heal the sick like Jesus healed the sick, is, this isn't a cookie-cutter type of deal. It's not A follows B, you know, B follows A and C follows B and D and so on and so forth. God does what God wants to do. And so the, the, the key element isn't if we could just figure out the formula, then we could, we could get this healing thing down. But I think John Wimber had it right when he said, you've got to be able to hear God and then do what God's doing because he seems to be all over the map. So far, I don't think I've seen him do anything twice. So I think this whole healing thing is highly relational. It's our, it's our relational connection to God. He speaks to us and we respond back to him. We sense what God is doing and as best we can, um, we do it with him. So today is healing six. And I want to talk about um, Jesus healing a man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. After that, we will have a ministry time, and I will leave room for words of knowledge. So for those of you who function that way, start listening now. Take Jot down little notes to yourself, and we'll leave an opportunity for you to share those after the message. So Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Please follow along as I read. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate your word to us today. Give us eyes that see. Give us ears that hear. Lord, make our hearts fertile ground to receive your word. And let this be the result. Let it bear abundant fruit. And Lord, make us more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay, so let's take a look at these six verses a bite at a time. The first couple of verses. Another time, Jesus went into a synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Why were they looking for another reason to accuse Jesus. Why was that going on? Well, to fully appreciate um, this dynamic, the context of what's going on, we got to kind of go back to a bit of chapter 2 of Mark. See, in this sermon series, um, I'm focusing on the healings of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Um, this is a topical series on healing. It's not a verse-by-verse -verse expository series on the Gospel of Mark, kind of like we did with Gospel of John. We took about two and a half years to verse by verse go through the entire Gospel of John. I'm not doing that here. I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm jumping from healing to healing. But to understand the context of what's happening here, which is very important to me when I'm teaching, we kind of got to go back to chapter 2. I'm not going to take it all apart, but I do want to make you aware. So we need to be aware of these previous verses in the second half of chapter 2. So before this current confrontation, Jesus shows up on the Sabbath, there's a guy with a shriveled hand there, and the Pharisees are watching him. It's like, almost like they're looking for a fight. Just go ahead, cross the line, you know, do something wrong, and we're ready to get you. 
So before this current confrontation with the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 3, there were three other clashes in the second half of chapter 2. The first was about eating with sinners in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. The second was about fasting in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. And the third was concerning the Sabbath in chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. Let me just describe each of those to you briefly. So eating with sinners... In chapter, uh, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, Jesus was teaching a large crowd as he was walking by a lake. And um, as he's walking by, he sees Matthew, the tax collector, and he extends the same invitation to Matthew, the tax collector, that he did to James and John and Peter and Andrew. He says, follow me. Matthew follows him. And that night, Jesus has dinner at Matthew's house. All of Matthew's friends were there. And they, they describe Matthew's friends this way, other tax collectors, and then the general category of sinners. So there's tax collectors and sinners all hanging out at Matthew's house, and Jesus is there as a guest of honor, and Jesus' disciples. Um, and the text says that when the Pharisees saw this, they questioned Jesus' disciples about it. I'm thinking when they saw this, well, what does that mean they saw this? Were they passing by? Did they peek in the window? <laughs> How did they become aware? Did somebody inform on them? Oh, we heard Jesus is over at Matthew's house. You better check I don't know. What does that mean? Somehow they found out. And after finding out, they questioned uh, Jesus' disciples about it. Asked, asked this question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now Jesus hears about this. And he goes right back at him. He does the same thing with these Pharisees. What did he do with the teachers of the law when that paralytic was healed? Right? The, the roof gets torn up. They drop the guy down. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And, and these teachers of the law, they're thinking in their head, like, basically they're saying, who does this guy think he is? That he could forgive sins. Well, Jesus, is, again, is you know, ultra aware of what's going on. And instead of backing down, he goes right at them. Jesus responds with this in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call not—I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know those are fighting words, right? Right? He's—he's he's poking the bear. He's provoking them, right? This is their—you know—this is their domain, the whole religion thing, what the rules are, how you play this game. He's poking the bear. So can you see? There's a growing tension here. And as we'll see in a minute, the tension is really this. It's between the new wine and the old wineskin. The old wineskin is the Pharisees and Jesus. And the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely the new wine. So that was, that was the first thing about hanging out with sinners. The next was fasting. In chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. But Jesus and his disciples, they aren't fasting. And Jesus is questioned about this as well. And he responds to them with three analogies. First, he says, is the guest of the bridegroom. Do not fast while the bridegroom is with them. Then he tells them, you know, you don't take a patch, you don't, you don't patch an old garment with a new piece of cloth. And then finally, he says, you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Jesus is basically telling them that, hey, I'm doing a brand new thing. And it doesn't fit into your old ways, systems, and structures. And then the third conflict was over the Sabbath. 
chapter 2, verses 23 to 38. On the Sabbath, Jesus is, is walking through some grain fields with his friends. And as they stroll along, they're plucking some heads of grain, and they're snacking on it. I don't know. Jesus trail mix or Jesus granola bars. Call it whatever you want. And again, what are the Pharisees doing? They're watching and they're judging. That's what Pharisees do. They watch other people and then they judge them. Then the Pharisees, after they watch and they judge, they usually do one more thing. They make an accusation. It says, look. This is what they say, the Pharisees' accusation in verse 24. Look. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus responds by reminding them about that time when David ate the consecrated bread and shared it with his men. And then he says this in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. Again, he's poking the bear. Again, he's provoking them. He says the Sabbath, this is Jesus' response to them. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And we learned last week that that title, Son of Man, is a messianic title. To, uh, to a Jew, certainly to a Pharisee, Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, he could have just as easily said, bluntly, plainly, I am the Messiah. And so when he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, he's telling them, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus has bucked these guys four times now, and we're only at the beginning of Mark chapter 3, right? The forgiving of the paralytic sins, the eating with sinners, the not fasting, and then now over the Sabbath. And each time he's publicly challenged them, and he won. They are not happy campers, okay? I don't think these guys are, are at all used to kind of getting their nose bent out of shape or, or rubbing it. Which brings us back, that's a little bit of the context that brings us back to, to, to today's verses, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It begins by, verse 1 begins by saying, another time. In other words, uh, the ongoing confrontation uh, is continuing. This time, and this time, Jesus is challenging them in their own backyard, in the synagogue, right? Jesus is there, the man with the shriveled hand is there, and the Pharisees are there doing what Pharisees do. They're watching, judging, and looking for a reason to accuse. And guess what? Jesus does not disappoint them. <laughs> Verse 3 of Mark 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Isn't that interesting? Just like the teacher of the law back in chapter 2, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And instead of backing down or taking the man outside the synagogue, didn't move him to some private room somewhere, or telling the man with the shriveled hand, why don't you come back tomorrow when the Sabbath is over? He brings the issue front and center, in front of everyone. And exactly what he says to this man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. You need to understand, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the schoolyard bullies of the day. They controlled people with judgment and intimidation and with fear and especially with punishment. Go ahead. I dare you. Cross the line. Color outside the lines. They're going to hammer you. You're going to pay. You're going to pay big time. 
everybody's going to know that you messed up. But Jesus, he's not the least bit intimidated by these guys. And he absolutely will not be manipulated by their tactics. Instead, he confronts them head, head on, and he does it on their own turf. Verse 4. Then Jesus asked them. So he has the guy stand up. You got the guy there with the shriveled hand. That's, this is the one that they're all concerned about. Now that this healer, Jesus is there. Has a stand up in front of everybody. And with them standing up there, now he addresses the Pharisees. He asked them, what's lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. You have to understand, these guys are not used to being challenged. They're certainly not used to being challenged in their synagogue. And they're, and they're not used to being challenged on the topic of the Sabbath. And here's Jesus schooling them. Jesus decides to go right to the heart of the matter and questions whether it's lawful or not to heal on the Sabbath. You could see how this is a, it's again, it's a question on the Sabbath. You could see how this event here is a continuation of the end of chapter 2 when Jesus told them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of even the Sabbath. So what is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good, to do evil, to save a life, or to kill? It's the Sabbath, all right, and Jesus wants to do good by saving this man's life. And the Pharisees want to do evil. They want to watch and judge and accuse, and as we'll see by, chapter, by verse 6, they want to kill. They want to kill Jesus. To save life or to kill. The word save here in the Greek is the word sozo. And it means, truly, to save, to deliver, to protect, to heal, to preserve, to do well, to, to be made whole. And that's what Jesus is offering this poor man. And it's exactly what he offers us. He offers sozo to us, to you, and to me, wholeness and healing. And right now, the opposition to this sozo is the Pharisees. Verse 5. He, Jesus, looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So it's not this guy, not only is he in the center of the room, standing up in front of everybody, he's got the shriveled hand. I don't know. I don't know this guy. Maybe he's embarrassed by his shriveled hand. Maybe he doesn't want to be standing up in front of everybody. Maybe he kind of keeps it tucked under his cloak. I don't know. But I do know that whatever was going on with his hand, his hand wasn't stretched out because Jesus said what? Stretch out your hand. And so if, if the man wasn't front and center enough, the issue that he needs healed is now absolutely front and center. Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And the hand was completely healed. So did you know that Jesus gets angry? This text here says that he looked at them in anger. And this isn't the only time. Remember that whole money changes thing? Man, tables were flipped. There was even a whip involved. That's pretty angry. It was quite the to-do. You know, every translation I looked at translates the word angry in some, some variation of the word, they all trans, translate it as anger. I must have looked at 20 different translations. I think the Message Bible probably says it best. It says he looked them in the eye, one after another, 
angry now, furious at their hard-nosed religion, and said to the man, hold out your hand. He held it out, and it was good as new. So Jesus is angry and deeply distressed at the Pharisees' stubbornness and their hard-nosed religion. Now Jesus has truckloads of grace for sinners. It's only hard-nosed religious folk that experience his anger. So what's really going on here? Well, this is my, my take on it. The Pharisees are vastly more concerned with how than what. The Pharisees are more concerned with how things are done than with what exactly is taking place. They're more concerned with procedures and principles and rules, regulations, the law, their Sabbath regulation, and the appearance of things. Then they are concerned with this poor man's healing. Jesus is just the opposite. He's vastly more concerned with what than how. Jesus is more concerned with the man than with the religious regulations. Guys, what's happening in this moment right here in this text? This is exactly what happens when revival breaks out. I've studied revival. We studied a few revivals together. Every time revival breaks out, the people who get upset, they're upset with how, not so much with what. They're not concerned that, wow, lots of people are being touched and all these wonderful things are happening. They're upset with how it's happening and that it messes up their services. Church doesn't seem to be the same anymore. God, God is vastly more concerned <laughs> with what than with how. That means that things will get messy and religious folks will all get bent out of shape. Because God doesn't play by our rules. Nearly every church I know, printed or unprinted, has an order of service. You know, God isn't, isn't uh, required to follow our order of service. He's not. And some people get really upset when the order of service is, is messed up. I want to be a leader who has his eye fixed on what God is doing and less concerned about coloring outside the lines of the religious status quo. If it's God, I say let's go for it. Jesus said he came in Luke, I don't have this written down a slide for it, but Jesus said in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, basically that he came to set the captives free, to release the oppressed, to open blind eyes, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Some people refer to that as Jesus' mission statements, beginning of his ministry. He reads Isaiah 61, guys, spirit of the Lord's army, this is why I've come, this is why I'm here. All of that was accomplished when he says to this man, stretch out your hand. Right? This guy is set free. This oppression is lifted off of him. He experiences the favor of God. Stretch out your hand. And I love that the verse goes on to say he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Complete restoration. Get this. We're talking about bone, muscle, tendons, nerves, blood vessels instantly restored. Have you ever met somebody with an injured hand, with a shriveled? You know what shriveled means? It's probably been a long time for it to get to that condition. Instantly. It's healed. Now that's sozo, right? That's the favor of God. That man went home that night feeling like he was saved, and he experienced the favor of God. 
And it's awesome. That's wonderful, right? And as a result, the Pharisees had a complete change of heart. They celebrated the man's miraculous healing and thanked Jesus for showing them the error of their ways, right? No. <laughs> Astonishingly, no. Can you believe it? The guy's hand gets healed. It, it, the text doesn't say, but it's a good chance maybe a lot of people knew him. And even if they didn't know him, all those Pharisees' eyes were on him, right? Because it begins by telling us they're watching to see what Jesus is going to do. They're fully aware of this guy. And they see a supernatural miracle right in front of their eyes. And it doesn't change a thing for them. Sadly, it doesn't change anything. This is what verse 6 says. Then, what does then mean? In light of the fact that this guy's hand was just miraculously healed, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I'm astonished. It's truly astonishing. They just witnessed a miracle, and their hearts remain hardened. That's amazing. So who, who are these Herodians? Well, basically, these are Herod's people. Herod was the Roman-appointed king of Judea, and these were his, these were his officials. So instead of having a change of heart, the Pharisees' hearts grew harder, so much so that now they're conspiring with their hated Roman oppressors to murder Jesus. A, a religious spirit is wicked evil. It will hold on to its pride and its sense of rightness to the bitter end. And even when God shows up in their midst and does the miraculous, their hearts are not softened. Their hearts are hardened. It's tragic. It's heartbreaking. So what can we learn from this healing encounter? I think there's a few things we can learn. The first is this. Not everyone's going to be happy when God shows up and starts doing God stuff. God shows up, starts doing God stuff. If it's outside of our God box, we'll have a God box, right? You know that, right? We all have a God box. It's the stuff that God does, or that we expect God to do. And then sometimes God comes and he moves on us in a new way and blows up our God box, or really our God box gets a little bit bigger. You know you can't put him in a box. Right? When David wanted to build a temple for him, David, God said to Nathan in a dream, the earth is my footstool. You cannot build a house for me to dwell in. The earth is my footstool. Guys, there's no box big enough that you or I could have that he could fit in. And so every once in a while, God comes along, does a God thing, and he blows up our God box. Thank you, Jesus, that he does it. But when that happens, some of us, we, we marvel at the bigness of God, at the power of God. Others, we get very upset. Because you know what? We put a lot of effort into that box. We decorated it. <laughs> There's a plaque on the wall with grandma's name on it. We got curtains and candles. We got incense. Hey, I paid for that sound system. We like our God box. And then God comes along and says, hey, I don't fit in your box. I'm God. I love you, but you're not God, right? So what can we learn from this healing encounter? Not everyone will be happy when God shows up and starts doing God stuff. Another thing is, is this, the last move of God always attacks the new move of God. 
I'm 56. I've lived through four, five moves to God now. And what I've seen happen every time, the wind of the Spirit begins to blow. The Spirit of God begins stirring. God pours out new wine. And the previous thing he did, which he was on, and it was wonderful and it was glorious, he had threatened by the new thing. The old wineskins become rigid. God pours out new wine, and heads start to explode. That's not how God did it before. I wish it wasn't the case. And this is one of my promises to myself. That when the next new thing comes, I won't attack it. I, I've shared this before, but I got saved during the Catholic charismatic renewal in the 70s. And in the early days especially, we were basically a fatherless move. You know what happens to fatherless kids? They make a lot of mistakes. It was messy. We made a lot of stupid mistakes. I can remember as a 16, 17-year-old, I'm leading prayer meetings with 275 people in the room, and I remember having to ask somebody when I opened my Bible, what do all those little numbers mean? I didn't know what chapter and verse meant. I was dumb as rocks, but the Spirit of God was moving. Why were we fatherless? Because the Pentecostals, who from the last move of God, who, the latter rain people who should have stepped up and fathered us, their head exploded when they thought, well, these people pray to Mary. How could God actually be showing up in their midst? Because God was less concerned about our errors in theology than, he, than they were. There was stuff that needed to be worked out. When God shows up on us, he's, he's not approving our philosophies and our theologies and our finer points of religion. He's saying, I love you. I want to spend time with you, with this whole people group. So what happens when there's a fresh new move of God? Jesus is a great picture over here. Jesus shows up. These are the, these are the masters, the patrons, the, the overseers of the last thing. Remember, we got these tablets, and God with his own finger wrote on them. We put them in a box. We got this whole temple thing going on. That was the last move of God. It really was God. But God, in his infinite wisdom, does a God thing. He shows up, starts doing new God stuff. And the guys who were part of the last thing that God did want to kill Jesus. They want to kill the Messiah. They want to kill God. So much so that they hate the new thing God's doing, they want to kill God. They can't even recognize that it is God. That's what happens anytime a fresh new wind of the Spirit blows, <coughs> that the last move of God attacks the new move of God. So what can we learn? Not everyone's happy when God shows up and starts doing God stuff. The last move of God attacks the the new move of God. The other thing is, you know what? You can try. I've tried. I've failed. You simply cannot put new wine into an old wineskin. It just won't go in. It just won't go in. It never ends well. If you got new wine, you need to, you need to construct in the hearts and minds of people a new wineskin so that they can, they can receive it. And the last point is this. To the old wineskin, the new wine always looks like rebellion. To the new wineskin, to the old wineskin, to the old wineskin, the new wine always looks like rebellion, and it must be destroyed. It must be stopped at all costs. Right? These Pharisees, they didn't see Jesus as a fresh new thing that God was doing. 
He was a threat to their wineskin. He was a threat to their structures and their systems. And he had to be stopped so much so that we'll partner with Rome, if necessary, to kill him. So what do we do about it? Those are realities I've watched it played out four or five times in my lifetime. What do we do about that? Well, I say let's do the stuff anyway. If God's shown up and we have a chance to do the stuff with him, let's do the stuff anyway. I say we love people anyway. And that we try with all we got in our hearts not to become the next generation of Pharisees when God shows up and begins doing something new. I don't want to be the next generation of Pharisees. With everything that's in me, I don't want to become the guys who, who are fiercely defending my glory days, the good old days. You remember when? Defending that to the point where I find myself resisting what God's doing now. So what do we do about it? I say we do the stuff anyway. I say we love people anyway. And we resist the temptation to become the next generation of Pharisees. So, so far we've seen, going through Mark's gospel, that Jesus heals different ways. I said this before. He cast out a demon, healed somebody, rebuked a fever, healed somebody with touch and a word of command to a leper. He says, I am willing to be clean. He forgave sin. And now in a response to the Pharisees and their hard-nosed religion, he says to a man, stretch forth your hand on the Sabbath. And the guy's miraculously restored. Tell you what, God's ways are not our ways. They're not. If we want to move forward, if we want to be effective in living supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced that this is the only uh, critical key. We need to be sensitive to God. We need to be intimate with God. We need to recognize how he communicates with us. And when we're, we become confident and comfortable because we're in relationship with him, oh, that's the way God speaks to me. Then we follow and do what he says to do. Right? Many of us here were married, right? Don't you have little buzzwords between you and your spouse? Aren't there little catchphrases that just mean something to you? One says a phrase to the other and it communicates a whole volume of information. Don't you have friends? Right? And between you and the friend, things are said and you know this means that. I got one friend who's just like, uber sarcastic. It's almost like it's their love language. If they want to say something nice, right, if they really want to compliment or encourage, they'll just say something sarcastic and then you know that, oh, they're happy with me. It doesn't mean they're upset with me. When sarcasm, sarcasm flows, that's their, that's, their, that's their love language. They love by being sarcastic. Well, what's, how does God speak to you? We want to be friends of God. I think there's no higher calling than to be a friend of God. Well, there ought to be language between you and him. And I know when the Spirit of God moves and he touches me this way, that that's really him. And when I get this sense from him or that sense from him, there's a greater sense of confidence. You know, he's told me this ten other times before. And this time right now, I really think that's him too. So if we want to get good at doing the stuff, I think it's imperative that we just cultivate our personal relationship with him. That not only we talk to him, but we listen when he talks to us so that we recognize his voice. 
And then those times will come where, oh yeah, that's God. I know God. How do I know God? I know his voice. Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. Right? He knows our voice because we spend time with him. We know his voice. And then we do what he tells us to do. It's the key. Sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, recognizing the voice of God, cultivating relationship between us and God. Jesus said that he did only what he saw the Father doing. Well, as we sense and perceive what God's doing, we figure out ways to better do it with him. So, I thought it would be good if we take some time to practice now. It's been good. We've done this each week, and I'd like to leave time for an opportunity for, um, to share words and knowledge. Let me just, um, let me just share a quote uh, from John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, uh, concerning healing the sick. This popped up on Facebook yesterday. Vineyard USA put this up. And Vineyard said this, Learning to pray for the sick is like learning to ride a bicycle. At first, the parent runs alongside the wobbly child to prevent serious injury. Soon he'll learn to ride smoothly and safely. Learning to pray for the sick is a similar process. The first solo experiences are usually messy, but in time, they become quite enjoyable. I am more interested in ministry than neatness, so I provide a place in which people know they are accepted and helped even when they fail. Guys, that reflects my heart so much. I, too, am more interested in ministry than neatness. I don't care if you color outside the lines. I don't care if you fail. If we're kind and loving to one another, it's okay. So I provide, and this is this right here right now, a place in which people know that they are accepted and helped. We get to practice. If we practice in here and we get a few things right, it'll give us confidence and it'll build our faith and, and bolster our courage to take the gifts of the Spirit outside the four walls of the church. And that's the ultimate goal for me. So let's pray, and then we'll ask for words of knowledge. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here today. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the truth that's in your word. Thank you for your kindness toward us. Lord, I ask that you would stir up the gifts of your spirit in the room right now. Stir up the gifts. Lord, stir up revelatory gifts. Give us Eyes that see, give us ears that can hear you, Lord. Lord, specifically I ask that you would give us words of knowledge about who you want to minister to, to, to now. And Lord, I ask that you would also stir up um, healing gifts, the gifts of healing as Paul lists them in the scripture, so that when we pray for people today, that they will experience sozo, that they'll be made whole and well. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, who has a word of knowledge they'd like to share?